a Podcast One production. Hi, I'm Nat Kringudis. And I'm Cecilia Ramsdale. Welcome to The Wellness Collective, a podcast where we invite you to be part of our wellness community to share, learn and live better. The purpose of all of our episodes in the Wellness Collective is to add a little bit more information to our listeners' bucket, you know, so that they can draw upon little bits and pieces that they find from the people we talk to, things that we cover, and to make their life happier, healthier and better, right? We love that saying, happier, healthier and better. We do. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. We we try and, you know, fit as much in as we can. I don't think that we're quite done yet, though. I think that actually mm. we're probably never going to be done. No, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. But the key to our happiness and contentment might just lie in philosophy, and philosophy is not something that we have really covered off, is it? Seems no, I really big. just want you to say the next part of what, you're, <laughs> what we're talking about because I'm like, finally. <laughs> so you've heard me mention the school. Of life, right? Just a couple of times. Oh, have I? Hmm. You yes, get, you, we you, have. You get obsessed by things too. Let me just. Put I know, but it's yeah. so funny because it's it, I, <laughs> we do. But this one, there was there's maybe three standout things you've been obsessed with. This, yeah. Kissing yeah. and oxytocin. Yeah. And you, <laughs> maybe there's a theme there, Cecilia. Maybe. It's all the good things. See, I'm not obsessed by the bad things. Well, I actually went and got someone from the School of Life to join us today and I'm very excited because I think, you know, he might be able to shed some light on being happier, mm-hmm. healthier and better. Mm-hmm. Hi, everyone. My name is Michael Boratura. And I'm lucky enough to be on the faculty of the School of Life. So the School of Life is an outfit that was put together originally in London by Alan de Bouton. And so in the School of Life, we teach a whole lot of um, classes that are basically in the domain of how to live a life worth living. Because um, his premise was very much that in order to be a plumber or a lawyer or any kind of profession, we need to go to school and we need to study three to five years to become adept at our skill. But no one teaches us how to live life. And a lot of it is about... Um, emotional intelligence. I teach a few classes. One of them is called How to Develop Self-Knowledge, for example, which I think is going to be some of the subject. And other classes are how to enjoy life and how to upgrade your emotional intelligence and so on and so forth. So this idea of self-knowledge, I mean, what is that? that? What is it? What is it exactly? Yeah, what is it exactly? And why does it seem scary? Okay, if you tune in, we can definitely say that we are conscious, right? There is a sense of being conscious of of the the world around (laughs) it. Yeah, it depends how much, um, you know, how much we um, drank at the pub sometimes. But uh, uh, we certainly seem to have an awareness of us living in the context of our life, Mm -hmm. right? So there's this sense of I, which we live within. The strange thing about it is that, you know, we don't have control over it, right? We wake up in the morning and that sense of I is there. And every time you do something, every time you move, every time you want something, every time you talk, you can feel that sense of I arising in you, right? So that sense of I is kind of like the one that we want to look at. It's a tricky one for us to, to sort of ascertain because if you tune into it, what you do is you try to use thoughts, to understand the sense of I. The only way that we can communicate is through interacting with words and thinking and and, and, and whatnot. But actually what we're looking for is probably prior to words, prior to thinking and so on. So there is a trick to it in a sense. And one way to kind of um, elucidate that sense of self and our experience of it is that um, if you imagine 
how a wave is part of the ocean. The volume of water that the wave is is also part of the volume of water that the ocean is, mm. right? But the wave has movement and form of its own sense. What happened for us is that we are part of some sort of a consciousness, a, a, you know, the volume of water of the oceans, but because we have our own volition as a form and a shape. As a drop. We, as a drop or as a wave, we tend to assume that we are the wave and we forget that we are the ocean. Oh, wow. Right? I like this idea that many of us don't really have a sense of who we really are. Mm. And is it because it's a scary thing or, or we have a sense of who we are, but it might not necessarily be the way other people see us? Correct. So when we talk about ourselves, we usually talk about our story, right? So we say, yeah. oh, you, you know, I'm a coach and I live in Melbourne and I have two kids, etc., etc." So we talk about ourselves using definitive formations of how our life appears, you know, how, what we've done, what we want to do, all that sort of stuff. We talk about dreams, we talk about aspirations, we often talk about our troubles and, you know, why, why it hasn't worked for us, that sort of stuff. But all of it is kind of like our psychology and it's obsessed with trying to figure out details, what's going on for our life through a story, but not through that sense of I. Right, And so the tricky or why is it scary is because we need to go beyond that. We need to drop the effort to try and understand ourselves on a level of a story and drop into understand ourselves through a felt experience of how we show up in the present moment as an experience. And that's really what mindfulness and meditation kind of allow us to do. But it's not a comfortable place to be in because it doesn't encourage thinking. And we're so used to think. Our mind is kind of diseased by overthinking everything <laughs> yes. that we don't really want to go there. And we certainly don't encourage that sort of capacity and training in young people. And it's harder to do when you get old. Why don't we teach it to teens? Is it something that we'd be good to to know before you launch into the world or do we need that kind of boldness of being a young person and and just going, yes, this is who I am and I don't need to dig deep. Otherwise, you, you would, I don't know, maybe you'd be too frightened to actually try anything. That's a great question. I, I, why don't we teach children, you know, emotional intelligence? Why don't we teach children compassion? Why don't we teach children to care for themselves and nature in a way that they could rather than, you know, like define success as some sort of a hierarchy that you need to climb and things that you need to achieve? I think we confuse as a society about what makes a difference and what's really important. And so our education system is very much built. It's geared to train people to function within that confusion. Mm. I would suggest that we do teach children to forget who they are in a sense. And because one thing that you can, uh, you can say about consciousness is that we are always conscious. It's just that we forget to be conscious of the fact that we are, right? So another way to, to elucidate the idea of consciousness is, is if you imagine that our awareness, our consciousness when we are born is like a, a, a blank sheet of paper, mm. right? And it's endless. It's kind of like interconnected to everything. And then our society starts to draw on it, like doodle on it, some stuff, right? So parenting and caregivers start to doodle on the paper a whole lot of concepts and ideas and thoughts and teach the child to start to identify with the doodle. That's what happened to us, right? So we then think, oh, you know, like I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm a girl, I'm a boy, I like this, I dislike that, I'm part of Australia, I'm part of Asia, whatever it is, right? That's fine, but we're not the doodle. We forget that we are the paper in the process. So you know, the, the children are there already. It's just that we kind of um, screw them up along the way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> totally. Do you think self-knowledge too or learning 
um, how to gain more of it. Is it about identifying things that trigger us? I mean, I think a lot of us are good at pushing things aside because we don't want to actually confront things that make us feel uncomfortable or what have you. So is this idea of self-knowledge about finding the things that we are happy with, that we can change, like, is that what it's about? There is two elements to it or two layers for it. The first layer is, you know, how to learn to live with our psychology better, right? And there's a lot of good stuff out there. There's brilliant psychology, you know, sort of models and materials and people who work with therapies and, and, and whatnot. There's there's self-help books. There's, you know, School of Life does really good work in terms of equipping people with better ways to be conscious. Um, Alain talks, Alain de Botton often talks about shining the spotlight of consciousness onto the hidden kind of grottos mm. of our unconscious. So, so there's a lot of stuff going on there and we can become more conscious of what's going on there and become more conscious of how we trigger it. So that's the kind of superficial, or I wouldn't call it superficial, but the top layer of it, right? Yeah, the easy and layer. The easy layer, <laughs> in the sense that it's, you know, you can work with the material and, and, and there are very skilled people to work with it. The underlayer, the sort of the, the basement layer, is really that internal quest of trying to understand who we are as a consciousness, right? And that layer has got a whole lot of, you know, a variety of great teachers and sages and wisdom that comes down the ages in all tradition that allow us to reflect on that experience of being human and how do we show up as being human. But it's not about our psychology in the sense that it wants to go underneath this. It wants to not to deal with the way that we think about things, but deal with the thinker. Who is observing all that? You know, if you if you tune into your experience, you tend to be locked into our thoughts and kind of operate from you know a thought come up and we identify with that thought yeah. as being who we are, and then we kind of act upon it. But if we try, we actually realize that we can watch that thought rise up, and that there is a part of us that can observe the thought. We're not the thought. So if you drop into that level, there's a lot of fun in kind of experimenting with, okay, how can I observe what comes up? Because if you're not your thought, you have a choice whether you're going to act on thoughts that are resourceful for you or not. And if you can see that certain kind of thinking is not resourceful, then you can say, okay, let me choose another thought. Let me try and practice take action on, on, on my thinking, but not from the automatic sort of thinking, the way that we kind of knee-jerk reactions to stuff. Say, okay, how can I solve this? What will be the right way to think about it in a way that works better for the pers- the other person and myself, say, if it's a conflict or whatnot? Mm, I think yeah. that so often we operate out of a you know, reactive state of being and what you're talking about certainly is something that you need to be aware of, mm. first of all, to mm. then action yes. a change and yes. doesn't mean you're not going to go to the default of losing your mind Mm. in any given opportunity. But I say to patients all the time, start with something really small Mm. that you're not completely triggered at, but Mm. it kind of is a bit upsetting Mm. and and, and experiment with it, you know, play around with it. What if I didn't react to this? What if I just paused for five seconds, observed the Mm. thought or the feeling or whatever's going on? and then made a choice and it's going to be different. But I think we find the idea of it overwhelming and mm. hard, too yeah. hard, and it doesn't have to be. No, I mm. love the way you just said, Michael, mm. you just let the thought come yeah. and mm. you look at it or you listen to it and then you go, yeah, not helpful or I'll act upon that. Yeah. Yes. 
But so often I think we are just operating out of a place where we're so overwhelmed, we're so under pressure and there's so much stress going on that we just keep on choosing that same habit over and over again. We're not still enough to observe the thought. And there is, you know, we kind of cognitive misers in a sense, yes. right? Which means that, you know, if we have a, a well-worn pathway in, in our neurology, in the way that our brain is wired around reacting or around being in a certain way, it takes effort to change that. It takes conscious effort to change it. You say, okay, like first to recognize it and then to watch it when it arises, and then to say, okay, well, I'm going to drop that and I'm going to choose something else. And if we do it well enough, then we rewire our brain to do something in a more useful, resourceful way. But it does take a lot of effort. And if we're not conscious to the fact that we can do that, we just operate from automatic pilot. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. But are we happy? You know, does that serve us? Does that work for us when we get automatically angry when someone says something? I'm just thinking from a parenting perspective, mm. that's, you've exactly hit the nail <laughs> on the head. And I had an example just recently where, I don't know, just the usual, someone was hitting someone unnecessarily. Mm. And instead of flaring up, I just went, breathe. I had that, the, exactly what you described. I had that mm. thought of, mm. I'm going to kill him mm. <laughs> again. <laughs> <laughs> and instead of reacting, because it makes no difference if I get cross or what have you, yeah. just used a calmer voice yeah. and I just separated them and, you know, moved on. And I thought, I actually felt that conscious decision to do that yeah. felt different in my body. Yeah, indeed. It's a somatic experience that's very, you know, that's very accurate. Yeah. Because, you know, it's not like we talked about the wave in the ocean. It's not like, you know, we have our, we have our thoughts, we have our feelings and we have our, our sensation, our bodily experiences and, and we sort of tend to focus. So what happens is we sharpen our focus and we, we, sh we shine the light on that particular experience. And especially with kids, we have the opportunity to do that because we tend to react a little bit less than we would. So if an, an adult gets annoyed with us, we're straight away in defense, right? Our mm. body cannot help it. We have to go into defense. We have this neurology that is 200,000 years old and it's meant to defend us. It's a little bit easier with kids because we don't take them as seriously. They're not as threatening in a sense to the system. And so we allow ourselves to kind of like, okay, they get angry. I can just not get angry and I can just say, hey, does that work for you or whatnot? So I think in parenting, in a sense, there is a grace because we are called to be wise about our relationship <laughs> with them. Yeah, sometimes it, that's hard. Yes, it is. It is. It but is. also, what about so many of our automatic responses are based on what we experienced as children. Correct, yeah. Something comes out of your mouth, you think, that, that was not even me, that was mum. <laughs> mum, yeah. <laughs> right. You know, I talk about the feet on the couch with the kids. I'm like, get your feet off the couch, get your feet off the couch. And one day my daughter said, why? I just had a shower and I just was like, I actually don't have a response other than that's what my dad used to say to me. Get your feet off the couch. You know what I mean? Right. It's just, it's it, these things are, are wired yeah, in us and... You know, we're starting to even learn about how much of an influence this whole idea of generational um, trauma. Yes. And we have to, if we want to live happier and healthier and better, yeah. we need to recognise this and, or mm. at least identify with it and start to do exactly what we're talking about to be able to change, mm. it, change yeah. it. But this this idea I find fascinating of, of generational trauma. It's not even your parents. It's their parents and their parents. Mm. It's like, my goodness. Mm. Yeah. 
But there's one thing we can do, and that is choose to change that. Right. So that if there is childhood trauma, how do we help them to be more aware? What would you say to the parent listening going, well, that's all good and well, but how do I help my children to be more mm. aware? Yeah. There is a historical kind of drag which you're pointing out at. If you look at our history as a species, so to speak, right? So you look at, say, quarter of a million years of evolution. I love how big this right. topic is. It's like, yeah. It's, it's like individual but massive yeah, it is. humanity. It is, yeah. right? It's like who we are as a species, how we operate. And again, what is our neurology? Like how do we, you know, how are we wired to react? We wired to survive on the savannah. That's yeah. what we wired for. Now, our, prob- our problem is that the savannah has changed, right? Mm. We've changed the savannah, so to speak. So we came out of a generation after generation after generation that was wired to deal with predators. And the sad thing for us in a sense is that the nice people didn't survive. It's the gnarly people, right? It's the it's the people who yeah. were jumpy and suspicious and always thought about what's going to go wrong that had babies. Because yeah. the other one were kind of like, got and got eaten, right? <laughs> and and um, um, Rick Hansen, who's the developer of the positive neuroplasticity model I work with, talk about the rule of nature. The one rule of nature is eat lunch, don't be lunch. Right? Yes. That's basically what it boils Absolutely. down to. So our, our neuropsychology has evolved to function within that kind of um, framework. But now we live in a modern world, but there's no predator, so to speak, but we continuously challenge. Our system continuously feels threatened because there's people that we're not familiar with, because there's emotions that sort of come up because of all of that. So I think all of that doesn't serve us because when we come to parent our, ch- our own children, we're mm. already stressed. We're already in kind of feeling under attack. Like modern life is kind of being under continuous low level yeah. sort of harm or feeling attacked, right? <laughs> low level and predators. so how, how, do we, how do we consciously parent from within that? And the trick for us is to remember to stop, you know, like you were saying before. Grandmother's advice to count to 10 was quite smart in a sense, right? Because if we just stop for a sec, what we'll start to notice is that our thoughts come and go and our feelings come and go and cessation come and go, but they're not who we are. And therefore, if we start to react and we kind of catch ourselves, we say, okay, that's my reaction. Do I really need to play that out? Is yeah. that going to serve me by yelling at my kids? They, what's the chances that they're going to actually listen to me? The most important aspect of it is that we tend to kind of overbear um, the children in a sense, right? And so if you just drop down on your knees, look yeah. at your kids' eyes and say, hey, that doesn't work for me what you're doing now. Can we kind of mm. work this out in a way that works for you and for me? You'll find partners to that negotiation quite yeah. often, right? Okay. Yeah. I love that idea too that there's sort of like this subconscious thing going on, but you have to use your intellect and your conscious to to deal with it. Mm. You know, like so that's all coming up. All the evolution is yes. is making you react, but you actually have to use your intelligent brain to go, okay, no, stop that. Mm. That's not serving me right now yeah. and yeah. I can do better. Yeah, no, that's absolutely, that's actually a very astute observation. So we have, you know, we have different parts in our brain. We have what's called the lizard brain. Yeah, I love right. that lizard brain. Yeah, and the lizard <laughs> brain is is there to make sure that you survive. So as soon as the lizard brain kind of assumes or detects or thinks that you're under attack, and under attack can be your kids screaming and you don't have the patience oh, for that, yeah. right? 
that lizard brain overrules higher functions, right? And you're in you're in flight, you know, flight or fight kind of mm. mode, right? So for us to sort of train the higher functions to kind of relax, the expression that you can use is you pet, you want to pet your lizard, you want to pet your inner <laughs> lizard. Because if, have you ever done that? You turn the lizard upside down and you pet, you pet its stomach and it just yeah. goes. Yeah, right? that's what that. you want to do to your brain. Yes. Yeah, you can say that to your kids too, you, or your partner. You need to pet your lizard right now. Yes. Yeah, pet yeah, your lizard, and they love that. They yeah. Kind of work with that, yes. Do we ever really know how other people see us? I remember being a kid and, I don't know, maybe I was a philosophical kid, but I remember this moment where, I, which is a slightly different idea, but I remember saying to my neighbour, trying to think what she made of it, I said, why am I me? Why was it, like, why, why am I not the person that lives in that house over mm, there? Mm. My version of life... I realised was different to other people's. Mm. I don't think I realised other people had had a different upbringing until I was about 30, though, just as a right. disclaimer. <laughs> but, um, but you know, like we, we all function in this body and we think that other people have a perception of us that is what we are putting out there. But is it, is it ever actually correlated? Mm. Well, if you think how rarely it is that we get to know who we are, how hard would it be to know someone else, right? Mm. So again, there's kind of two layers to it. The first layer is that we probably cannot because we can only perceive the world through the way that we think about it. Um, the brilliant thing about trying to um, work with this sort of thinking or this way of, um, of framing thing is that you realize sooner or later that you don't have a relationship with the way that the world is. You have a relationship with the way you think about the world. That's what you know, Yeah. Right? That's the only way that you can do. So... In the way that we think about the world, we think about other people. But we don't see other people. We only see the way that we perceive other people through our thinking. <laughs> Therefore, we see a very short, very limited range of who they are in that interaction that we have. And quite often what happens very fast in any relationship is that we build an idea, just as we have an idea that we are that personality, mm. right? We have an idea that they're their personality. In some sense, we, we kind of, again, going back to the wave in the ocean, we forget that they're just another wave. It's the same body of water. It's the same consciousness that's sort of appearing through that body-mind organism and through mind. And we can have a relationship on that level if we were just comfortable enough to drop and be present and silent with them. But we know we're interacting with their personalities, right? And from our personalities. So if we, if we allow ourselves to just... Um, drop at that level, that's fantastic. But normally what happens is that we just think something about them and then, of course, that's the only thing that we can see in them. We yes. usually assert the kind of biases that we have another, on another person. So if you made up your mind that someone is you know, stingy or someone is angry or someone is whatever, lovely for that matter. Stingy is you, a great thing to think of someone, isn't it? <laughs> then you're likely to see the actions yeah, that, that, that manifest in that while actually, you know, they're, they're just like any other human beings and they have a whole range of actions and interactions. So it's an interesting, I don't think we can ever know another person no. really because we, we can't really see the full range of who we are, who they are anyway. Well, it's interesting when you meet someone for the first time and, and you know the first impressions count very idea. Much, very much. So you have your first impression, be it good or bad, and then you might know them for longer, mm. and then you think, oh, maybe that maybe that was unfair, or, or maybe you know maybe yeah. I got it wrong. But I reckon it always comes back mm. to that first impression you got. Eventually, you're like, you know what? That was that was actually right. It's very hard to change. Yeah, it's very hard to change. And in terms of mindfulness practice, the trick for us is to 
just ask, okay, what is alive right now in that interaction with that person? And can I be just present with that? Mm. Can I just allow for a person to be different today? Not because I think about them in being a certain way. Um, that's the only way that they can be. And I, I think naturally, I, I'm, I'm a believer that people are naturally good, actually. Mm-hmm. You know? and, and, mm-hmm. and so I think if we just relax a little bit, life can be very tough and we tend to be on that guard that we talked about because it's a survival kind of... But actually, we live a great life, especially in Australia. And so if we, if we almost like... Um, come open-hearted to any situation, even when we have a history of difficulties and say, okay, what can be here? You know, how can I be kind? How can I be purposeful and meaningful in a kind way to that particular moment? That will make a difference to your experience, your daily experience. I think kindness is a a really good thing Mm -hmm. to mention. Yeah. And, you know, with all this talk of mindfulness, because mindfulness is, we've covered it off in a few episodes, and it is a bit of a buzz thing. But, oh, yeah. But, <laughs> and yeah. I'm sure you will know if mm. you're a, a seasoned practitioner. But really, it's, I think it's just teaching people to be more thoughtful mm. and more thoughtful for those people around you. Like last night, I actually went to a concert and there was a, a homeless man outside the concert and he had his, you know, sign out in front and what have you. And I noticed maybe it was the group of people, the uh, the, the fact that they'd just left the concert and they'd had a good time, uh, the age that most of the people were at, all of these factors. But I noticed that a lot of people stopped and, and gave him money. Mm. And I did too because I, I'm like, well, you know, I, I could have bought a drink in the concert. I didn't, so I'll give you the money that I... I didn't spend on the drink or whatever. But it was really an interesting moment because I thought all of those people who have then encountered him in their life have Mm. taken away something that's good, Mm. you know? Mm. Indeed. And so there's little moments everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And, And it's beautiful that the experience of giving actually enriches us. And there's a whole class of practices and experiences that can only come or can only grow by practicing it. So if you think of trust and kindness, and equanimity, that sort of class of experiences, right? The way to become more trusting is to trust. Yeah. The way to become more kind is to be kind, right? And it behooves us as human beings, if we want to live a happier life, we haven't really even started talking about that, but, you know, that's definitely a useful kind of Norse point for us to, you know, like how can I be kind? How can I show up with kindness to whatever rising up in, in my life? You know, it's like if that person is out there, can I see the human in them you know what would Mm. happen if I was sitting outside and I was hungry you know what would I want right so our ability to see another person's walk in another person's shoes so to speak is really useful in terms of if we want to if we want to live a more fulfilled happy life it's Mm. it's part of it's certainly part of the practice I would say Something that I have learnt from this lady sitting across from me since I've known her for the past five or six years is that if you are giving to the people around you mm. in a professional sense or a personal sense, you grow from that as well. Mm. I think there's a lot of people, because you're very good at that, Nat. You're very good at supporting well, the people kind, around you. you. You are. Mm. And 
And in a professional sense, I find it very interesting that a lot of people are threatened by that idea. Mm. That if you encourage someone else to do something that you're doing or you are supportive of them or what have you, then that diminishes your chances of doing the thing as well. Mm. I think that's a very Australian way of thinking and I don't know that the rest of the world is all as much like that as we yeah, are. Right, yeah. I think it exists yeah, about everywhere, that, but yeah. I, in my experience and observation, uh, maybe it's the people that I spend time with, I don't know, but in Australia, tall poppy syndrome is definitely yes. a factor and yeah. when I bring this up with people that I encounter all over the world, they are like, what is that? And I'm like, well, when someone is succeeding, you want to bring them down, you know, be, mm. to help yourself it doesn't even make sense, but the reason we do it is to help ourselves feel more adequate. But mm. if you think about that logically, that can never make you win. What you're saying, if you want to be more, if you want more kindness, be more kind. You know, mm. if you want more of something, mm. definitely give it. Give yeah. it. You know, yeah. I remember uh, another practitioner, she came in, she said, you know, I'm a practitioner and I just wanted to talk to you. I'm thinking of opening up a clinic just around the corner. And I was like, Great, amazing, that'd be awesome. And one of the girls that was sitting there is like, why are you so happy about that? I'm like, because more <laughs> creates more, like more of that. Mm. More people in our area accessing healthcare and, and Chinese medicine and what we're all about, that's got to be a good mm. thing, right? Mm. And and so, you know, I really am passionate about helping people understand that the mm. more you give and give without expectation, like just yeah. because you want to help somebody, not because you're going to benefit from it. Mm. I guess initially it's easier said than done, but I would be encouraging people to just try it on and see what happens. Yeah. Like mm. try it on as an experiment. What yeah. if I actually didn't see this as being, you know, creating scarcity, but it was actually going to create abundance if yeah. I did that? Yeah. That's, mm. that's beautiful. You know, when all things said and done, what it boils down to is that you see the world that you put out. So if you think that the world is scary and everyone is out to get you, you're going to have a you know a life full of experiences where everyone is scary and out to yeah, get you, right? But that's also because you're attracting what you, you're looking to see as well, right? I, I think we need to be a little bit weary of that sort of new age trend of like, you <laughs> oh, know, yeah, totally. like you're, you're, you're so to attract exactly your experience oh, or whatever. Yeah. It makes it very, it sounds very simplistic and it, it it's just not as, it's just not as kind of woo-woo, I think, as some people put it out. I think what happened is that you tend to, you tend to interact with the universe in a very precise way and that precise way is predicated on the way that you see the universe. So in other words, there is multiplicity of interactions and options and opportunities and things that are happening out there, but you tend to kind of connect with what you mm. are, you know, almost like another way to kind of look at it, uh, Robert Keegan um, talks about this idea that you're driving your car and you look at the road, but you forget that you're looking through the, the, the glass. The glass. You mm. don't see your screen. You just see the road and you think, oh, the road looks like this. No, the road looks like this because you're looking through a particular screen. And unlike a car, it's not opaque. It's filtered through your opinions, your ideas, your prejudices and so on and so forth. And so for us to kind of, again, be present with what is real, ask ourselves, is this real or is this my thinking about it? And your conversations about abundance and the tall poppy seed, and it's a fascinating, I think, exploration for us as a nation. You know, I love this country with passion. I feel very lucky to have come here. I've immigrated here 30 odd years ago and, and I've been here on and off for about 15. And, and I do feel that on the one hand, we, we've got everything and anything yeah. available for us. But we're not actually, you know, making the most of it sometimes, I feel, because on the, on the you know, on the people level, we have a lot of that sort of 
um, strained back. interactions yeah. and pushbacks. Really and on the leadership level, we don't seem to be able to kind of bring up to the top the kind of leadership that will really take us to, mm. you know, to a, a, an open new place. It seems to be based a lot of it on fear and looking mm. backwards. Being and threatened. Trying, being it is interesting. I, I had a um, one of my mentees that I was taking through um, a process that we always do and we get you to think about people you could connect and collaborate with. Mm. And I vividly remember her saying, you know, on her list of people, oh, well, I wouldn't want to do that with you because that would <laughs> it, you would be a competitor. And I'm like, I am not your competitor. We're doing this together. But it was interesting that's where her mind yeah. automatically went, well, mm. I wouldn't want to do it with you because same audience, you're a competitor. Mm. That wouldn't make sense. Mm. I'm like, no, no, more of that. So mm. it's not even that we consciously, uh, 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 it's a a part of our culture. Yeah. And I think that's where and it comes lizard difficult. brain. Go back right. to the lizard brain. Correct. It's, but it is. It's part I'm of it. So by that. Yeah. just being aware yeah. of it. But exactly, when you mm. are triggered, when mm. you when you find yourself thinking, oh, well, I wouldn't want to do that or how dare they have that success mm. or how, you know, oh, I don't know. I hear people say things all the time like, oh, I just unfollowed them because, you know. <laughs> and you're like, you're pushing away the exact thing that you want. It doesn't yeah. make sense. Yeah. But I think, again, like you said before, it's just about being becoming aware and having that consciousness that that's yeah. what, if it triggers you, then I think Look that's a why. beautiful thing yes. to explore. That's that's mm. very astute. If it triggers mm. you, instead of trying to blame or change or wreck or you know destroy whatever sabotage. it is, is, sabotage whatever triggers you, ask yourself why does it trigger you, mm. right? And and most of the time you can find something inside it you can tweak. Because again, like we have this, the the largest driver of our. our unhappiness is the fact that we argue with reality. Something happens and we don't like it and so we try to control it or change it or we you know we try to manipulate it so it fits with the way that we think about how things should happen, right? We don't have any control about circumstances as such. We don't know if we're going to walk outside the door and you know there might be a bus that's going to be waiting at the right corner for the wrong time or whatever all that sort of stuff right so so how do we deal with that is understand what we do have control and what we do have control is the kind of focus that we put on you know like what are what am i focusing on what kind of meaning are we going to put into stuff yeah and certainly what kind of actions we can take so that's in our control that's the stuff that we need to work i think in terms of that that's you know the 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 sense of us in in australia being particularly averse to other people's success. I'm not sure that that's, I think we have a flavor of it, but I think it's a human predicament that comes out of the fact that, again, originally we were wired to be dependent on each other and help each other. That's one of the reasons why it's actually hard to say no to someone mm. is because saying no in the past it wasn't good for you. If you were continuously saying no, you'll be out of the tribe, right? True. If you're out of the tribe, you don't survive. Uh, so there's wiring inside that is operating <laughs> there, right? And 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 that wiring is not protect. It, you know, it's not functioning it's in, in its optimal state in a sense. So before, if I was, if I was competitive, right? The, the edge of that competition served everyone else. If I wanted to be the best hunter or the best gatherer or the best you yeah. know, boat builder everyone or the best benefits. warrior, everyone benefits. You know, that fell apart. And so we became a lot more selfish because we don't have that system and we don't really see our tribe anymore. We don't know how to work with that. And so we kind of work for ourselves. I think that's an aspect of it. That's, that's exactly what I was going to say. Great way of putting mm. it. I was exactly, when you were saying that, and I'm glad you got to that point because I was basically going to say because there's no community yeah. or there's less community than ever before. Yeah. But and even that idea of you're a great boat builder mm. and you're in a 
tribe and you see a 15-year-old who's also got the potential to be a great boat builder. So yeah. you say to him, let's do this together and together we make better boats. Yes. And one day then I don't have to make the boats. You can do <laughs> True, it True, exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Succession planning. Absolutely, right? absolutely. So, yeah. There was yeah. a natural wisdom to the way yeah. that we, you know, and, and let's qualify that. Life was short, nasty and mm-hmm. brutish as some yeah, well, say, in true. some ways, right? But the essence of how we work together with each other in that particular unit was actually quite intelligent. And I, and I cannot fail to, you know, to mention in this case that I think we lost a lot of the wisdom that came through the feminine kind of side of our, mm. of our tribe, mm. right? And I think that, that wisdom is very naturally in tune to interconnectedness because you're kind of wired for that. You see the bigger picture, right? And because we had 10,000 years of kind of suppressing that, subjugating that wisdom, what we ended up with is this sort of dominating spirit that wants to go and dominate and on and kind of so wreck things. Male-dominated Ma- male idea. Male-dominated, but mm. it fails to sort of nurture that interconnectedness and see the fact that if I, you know, there's a there's an expression in, I think it's a South African word um, um, or philosophy certainly called Ubuntu, which in essence means I am who I am because of who you are. Right, so I, I can only be my best if I support you to be your best. That's yeah. that's how we really thrive, right? So we lost the Ubuntu kind of edge that mm. we used to have as a collective, and 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 very much I think it's time for us to find it again. I think too. I learnt something earlier this year from someone who works in the voiceover industry, which is a very individual industry. Mm. You generally work by yourself. Mm. You get booked for jobs individually. You don't know what's going on with other people who do the same work as you. And so it's quite competitive and people are naturally that combative thing when they see each other. That happens a lot. I find it a bit draining sometimes. But I heard this analogy from someone who works quite high up in in England and she said, we're like flowers growing in a field. And flowers growing in a field don't look at the other flowers in the field and go, oh, that's an ugly flower or that I'm not as pretty as that flower. I don't compare myself. We Together, we're this beautiful field but, and individually we're great, but together we're more. And I was like, that's what you're saying about the abundance. But mm. I like that analogy of the flowers. I was mm. like, flowers don't compete with each other, mm. do they? They just grow in the field next to each other mm. and together they're better. Mm. And of course, you know, a, a little bit of competition is healthy when you can nurture it in the right way as mm. well. I think it doesn't have to be, a, well, it, it can be a motivator to, to be inspired, but it, I think we're jealousy comes in and um and and especially pulling other people back yeah mm. that's something that we really have to do some mm. self work in and, and mm. checking with ourselves if we're being triggered in that way like yeah. you said it's great to strive mm. to be best I think absolutely one of the one of the most beautiful elements of how we do it right it does show up in sport mm. because at the end of the game normally right the two sides like shake hands or hug or yeah. say, great, you know, I did my best, you did me your best, and today, you know, whoever yeah. was the winner was the winner. But we don't see it as an affrontation that the other person actually got, you know, got the game or whatever, mm. right? We just see that it's an opportunity for us to strive and get to our best. If we could do that, you know, in business, in our relationship or whatever, we'll probably rise collectively yeah, in a sense a lot, a, lot more, a lot more wisely as a collective. Hey, anyway. before we let you go, but let's talk about, Social media, the big (laughs) elephant in the room at the moment. You know, we've talked about millions of years ago when we were humans, but at the moment, something that defines our sense of self a lot is the way we portray ourselves on social media. And I, I'm going to sound like an old person here, but this idea of 
gorgeous young women feeling like they have to pout and stand in a particular way to take a photo and they you mm. know that it has to be vetoed before they put it out there mm. how does how does that affect our self knowledge and our our self worth if if we're constantly looking for that feedback mm. on that level mm. you can just say i don't know it's okay i, no, I, <laughs> I actually I, think there's been a wave of change with this i really yeah. do if you look at had people to. i had to but mm. there are people that are very transparent out there now that will call it out or just start i think people are starting to be more authentic yeah because that's what people resonate with mm. and you can only pretend to be something for so long before you're not anything anymore. Mm. And I watched this definitely with the rise of the health coach, you know, five years ago or so, every second person was a health coach and so many of them weren't authentic. Mm. They were trying to be someone else. And I remember at the time saying, I mean, that can't last. Mm. And the ones who were authentic and the ones who aligned to their vision were really passionate and got on that, they're still there now. Mm. But if you look, there's so many that aren't there now. And I think it's the same mm. with, with social media. I think I think from a, a, a sense of self-knowledge, it could you can flip it and it can actually be a positive thing. It mm. allows you to stay connected with people you wouldn't yes, ordinarily be connected true. with. I do you love know? that about it. Um, so I think we have to... We have to see it for what it can give us mm. and be really aware of the other bits that, that can be dangerous. Mm. But that's like anything, isn't it, really? Anything in life we need to get, again, it comes back to the awareness, consciousness. Right. What what am I getting out of this? Why am I doing this? Yes. What am I sharing? Am I sharing this because I genuinely want to actually help the collective or am I sharing it because I need validation? Mm. And if you can start to look at that, I think it's a very different, um, social media can offer something very different. Mm. But for a lot of people, they're not there yet. I get that as well. And I'm certainly not saying that I'm enlightened <laughs> because there were some times where I'll share something that I think is really great and no one else thinks it's great and I'll be like, well, damn it, that was great at the time. And that was how, good to me. How does that affect your sense of self-awareness? I'm aware. I, I guess more than ever I, I probably care less, but I like to look at what resonates with people and why it resonates. Mm. So when I'm sharing something and there's lots of conversation, healthy mm. conversation, I get really excited it's about that. Interesting, yeah. isn't I it? get very excited. I don't care if you don't like, you know, I, I care about the interaction if that's it gets involved. You thinking. Mm. Yeah, you know, why? And and I, I find it fascinating when I can share one thing and I can share something that will change your life mm. and you won't care. But I can change <laughs> share something that I know is controversial or will trigger somebody yeah. um, in a good way. And I watch that and I, I, it makes me laugh a little bit because I'm like, I've just given you tips on how to live happier, healthier, better. But no, mm. we want to have something else that's, you know, triggers people that you, then you can have a discussion with. So I don't mm. know, I don't think that, I think that it's changing. I'm going to mm. say that. I really do. Yeah. I think it's it's very it's clearly very complex, right? Yes. Because because <laughs> there is a layer of it where we don't actually know what it does to the brain. Yeah. In other words, it's it you know it does interact with the way we think, with the way we store information, with the way we have a relationship, and so we've got this generation of people who are starting to live a lot of their lives through screens, and we don't know what it does, but. Everything that seems to be emerging in the research suggests that it's not very good for you if you do it all the time, mm. right? So that's the first layer of it. The second yeah, layer of it is, is is exactly what you you were referring to, Nick. Is 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 you know how do we use it as a tool and to you know for what purpose? And I think for there we owe it to young people to learn to moderate and do whatever they do online in a way that doesn't um, that doesn't confuse them. I think the confusion is 
is multiplied, but it's not actually new. So, you know, 200 years ago, I, I would imagine that young women thought that if they had really narrow hips, a narrow waist, that would be the right way to show up. And they spend a lot of time and energy because that's what society told them is the right mm. look, right? And I think, you know, young young kids now have, have this idea that if you pout and you, you know, you do a right kind of selfie, you show up in the most successful way. So the definition of Just how... Just the modern version of the it. The modern version of mm. it, but it's it's a lot more pernicious and it's a lot more available for every person to kind of do and play with. And I think that's where it becomes dangerous. It's, it's much easier to fall into continuously serving that and and we we need to qualify that for them for that for and say no there's 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 other stuff beyond that 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 is really important and mm. a lot of it is relationship face to face not through a screen. I think it's up to us also to have those conversations and, and lead by example for our children, like mm. anything, yeah. to show them the right way to use something like that. But, you know, once upon a time we would have said the same thing about video games or mm. there's, there's this constant evolution of things that then we look back and go, well, it could be educational. Like, I don't know, it's, there's always mm. this push and pull between all of these things. But I know, again, if things are triggering people, whether it's social media or the fact that their child is spending too long on the Xbox or whatever, mm. you know, we need to be more responsible. We need to lead by example. Well, you know, is your, your child's spending all their time on your Xbox, yet you're sitting over there maybe with your head <laughs> buried in a book. But that's more acceptable to be in a book than being on a screen. Do you yeah. know? But it's the same thing. You're still not present having conversations. It's just you're in the same space. Mm. So... Again, if if it's something that we are identifying as an issue, it's up to us to then go and create change around that. But there's always going to be something. And have the conversation. I, I think it's very interesting to see the kind of reaction that, that was happening in the Lunig's Oh, yes. Right? Have you seen that? No. It's yeah. basically a mum pushing a pram, looking at her phone while she pushes the pram and the baby's fallen out and she's walked on by and not noticed. Oh, right. And there was a big reaction to that, Very wasn't big reaction and real kind of vilifying sort of comments and it really triggered people right mm. and and you know i've always perceived him as a philosopher he's in a, a sense very you know, he's, a, he's a social philosopher. commentator mm. on on you know in in a very sharp and 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 amusing way often right? i thought it was and, actually so captured the zeitgeist like, perfectly why would that trigger i don't understand it, what was the it triggered a massive amount of backlash against but him but saying what that say you know saying but basically he's you know not respecting motherhood or you know whatever oh, wow. like, People got tri- triggered, and the sad thing is that he's invariably quite right. I mean, how many times yeah. have you seen parents on the beach with their phone <laughs> oh my gosh. while the kid is playing next to them? Right. So yeah, yeah maybe he didn't fall off the pram, but they. The phone does get more attention than the child. Yeah, um, I was on true. my phone at the beach and Olivia paddled out here to the first boy on a, on a boogie board. There you go. And there was a family sitting there. And went, do you want to know where your daughter to is? Me, Excuse me, is that your, your daughter? And I looked up. I'm like, there was. It's really far, really far, right? I love that you're on your phone when just doing that. You are the personification of Michael. I Lee. am this. Yes, and yeah. I'll, I'll happily admit this. But anyway, so and <laughs> so there was that moment of. Don't panic, because if I panic and this child falls in, it's done. Like yeah. she's mm. not; she can swim, but mm. she'll Ugh. panic, and then yeah. so I'm like, um, Olivia, <laughs> trying to <laughs> get her attention gently. Like I think you better come back. And the people were looking at me. It was so fun. Like, it was well it was done really, you really scary. But thank you for letting me know. Anyway, I was horrified. But it only takes one thing like that for you mm. to then actually go. Mm. I need to pay attention. Yeah. Yeah. But it's such an easy distraction. Yeah. 
And it's also that lead by example thing. You were mm. just saying, mm. if you're if you're saying to your kids, you can't play Minecraft for another hour, but then you're wandering around with your phone in mm-hmm. your hand, mm. it, you're kind of not really Tricky. setting the example that yeah. you want them to follow. Yeah. And coming back to the, the self-awareness, you know, people don't want to think about the fact that that might actually represent them and the way they're living their I life. I think that's what triggers people. Because the trick for us is that the people who design those things are very good at what they do. And they design them in such a way that they actually do cater for our neurology. That is to say that... Like catnip. Well, the the (laughs) dopamine kind of hits that we get out of a message or out of a bling or out of, you know, whatever, being liked and all Mm. that. And and we wired for that, right? So so there's enough scientific evidence to suggest that if you feed those neurological circuits in a certain way, they'll just keep firing on and on and on and on. And those machines, those, those screens do that. So it's actually very hard to resist, right? And I think what's happening is that people, you know, like we, we're actually threatening the joy of, mm. you know, being able to kind of get this incredible rush every time we get something. And not not with awareness, I think, but people, some, one of the reasons why people reacted so badly is because you really threatened their, yeah. their dopamine hits. It's like, what? You know, it's like, I'm not supposed to do that or whatever. And, and again, I don't think a lot of it is conscious, but, but no. there's certainly there's an interest. You know, if it triggers you, then there's something for you to look at it. I think that's the one thing we can really take away from this conversation is that if a thought comes up Mm. and you you do notice it and you think, hmm, Mm -hmm. I don't want to deal with that, are you pushing it aside or or can you actually consciously Mm. go, how will I react? And then what changes then? Yeah. And then next time that happens, I'll know that my yeah. reaction will be this and I can... Yeah, want. indeed, indeed. So you're absolutely right. Starting to develop this understanding or insight that everything that we relate to, we relate to through the way we think about it and that we actually have some leverage on how we think about things. So then the next question is, how do we notice, right? That's the automatic pilot that mm. was talking about. And we have this fantastic mechanism in our head called the reticular access system, which means that when you put your mind to notice something or when you talk about something and it's almost like it's on your, um, it's on your screen. Yellow cars. It's, yeah, th- then you notice, notice it. So if I cars. told you that, you know, if I told you that I like red Toyotas, yeah. you're going to notice three red Toyotas on your way home I'm going to try today, that, right? Yeah. So in that sense, if we put our mind to notice, you know, a particular thinking habit that doesn't serve us, it's more likely that we'll notice it. And if we notice it, we start changing it, it will become stronger and stronger. This is how we really kind of change our habitual patterns of thinking. We can change, we can change for the better. And why not? I mean, mm, life is yeah. a lot happier when you're kind of happier with things. So mm. why don't work on that? Yeah, mm. yeah it's like a superpower, isn't it? Yes, Absolutely. it is. It, it is. is. I mean, yes. the human brain is the most complex organic object in the universe. Wow. As far as we know. We right? all got one, even we though some people don't one. seem to use them. <laughs> we, that's right. Between our ears, we have the most complex object we know on in the universe. Yeah. So, you know, use it wisely. Mm. Why not? Right? Oh, I love <laughs> it. Michael Beltra. Thank you so much for joining us for this discussion. Yeah, It's pleasure. a long one, but gee, I think it was worthwhile. What do you reckon? Amazing. Thank yeah. you so much. Oh, thank you. Um, tell us again where people can find you and uh, your teachings. Sure. Okay. So um, if you want to go to my website, it's positive neuroplasticity, one word, dot com dot au. Do you feel happier, healthier and better? Oh. 
Yes, definitely. <laughs> Most definitely. That was our aim. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, of course, if you have enjoyed the episode, please head to iTunes and give us a rating. Mm-hmm. And don't forget to snap us wherever you are listening. Oh, yes. We, we would like you to share. Now, the problem with this is that it only stays there for a little period of time. If I miss it on the socials, then it's gone. So, um, oh, can you yes. send it to you directly? Yes, don't send me a, 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 send me a picture. Don't yes. send me it. There's two ways of, anyway, you'll work it out. Don't send Send Nat the picture. Send the picture, not the one thing that you have to view. Anyway, um, and we'd love to reshare that anywhere that you are in the world and what you've what you've um, taken away. So absolutely, yeah, we are the Wellness Collective podcast on Instagram. Yes, I love it. Until next time, we do hope that you are feeling a little bit happier, healthier, and better. 